Hey sleuths, welcome back to Cold Case Study, where we dive into a new cold case every Saturday. I'm your host Morgan, and Houdini is around here somewhere, creating chaos wherever he might be. Thank y'all so much for sticking with me through the crazy life of being a college podcaster. You guys are the best. Just to let you know, I've closed my Etsy shop for the time being, but I plan to return to making merchandise once I have an actual business plan in place. However, you can still purchase merchandise through my Instagram and Facebook DMs or by subscribing to my Patreon at bit.ly backslash ccspatreon in all caps. A big thank you to Travis for being my faithful patron and supporter. I appreciate you so much. Before we get into things, we have a new segment in our show. As many of you know, I post missing posters for both for missing indigenous children, and now I'll be giving a quick blurb on one of the missing children just to give them a signal boost. Today, let's talk about Lammy Walker. Lammy was born October 7th, 2004, and when he went missing, he was 16 years old. Standing 5 foot 5 tall, Weighing 135 pounds with medium-length black hair and brown eyes, Lammy was last seen in Bellevue, Nevada. If you have any information, please contact the Bellevue Police or 1-800-THE-LOST. Let's get to it! Today's episode is about the Axeman of New Orleans, a man who targeted Italian-American immigrants and aimed to give them a bloody end with an axe. You voted for it, so here it is. Top off your coffee and grab your sleuth book because today we're diving straight in and I've only got one question for you. Can you help solve a cold case? Warning, the following audio contains adult themes and strong language. Listener discretion is advised. Jazz is all about the improv and feeling the music. One unidentified man loved the genre so much that he would spare anyone who played it from the business end of an axe. The odd thing about his deadly obsession with jazz was was that the genre was only in its infancy, having come into fruition in the 1900s. When the first murders occurred is up for debate, but no one can deny that 1918 is when the reign of terror begun. The first to die would be Joseph and Catherine Maggio, Italian-American immigrants who owned a grocery store. They were attacked on May 23, 1918 asleep in the bed they shared in an apartment above their store on the corner of Upper Line and Magnolia. They were at peace. In an adjoining apartment next door were brothers Jake and Andrew Maggio, Joseph's brothers, intoxicated and asleep. Unlike later murders, the Axeman would force his way into the home and used a shaving razor found in the apartment to slit the necks of the couple. Catherine's vote throat was slit so deeply it was reported that it was nearly severed from her shoulders. Despite having slipped their throats, the killer bashed their heads in with an axe before leaving. Joseph survived the brutality long enough to be discovered by his brothers, but died a few minutes after their arrival. The shaving razor used to slit Joseph and Catherine's throats belonged to Andrew Maggio, the brother, and that made him the main suspect. But the story was that the razor had made its way into his brother's apartment because he wanted to have a nick taken out of the blade. An eyewitness is stating that there had been suspicious, a suspicious character hanging around outside the Maggio apartment before the murder. Andrew and Jake were cleared from suspicion. 
Now, if this had been a one-and-done kind of thing, I would definitely say that Jake and Andrew killed their brother and his wife. But what was to come would show that the Axeman of New Orleans was a disturbed individual who was out for blood. The Maggios are sadly not at rest, according to Nola Ghosts, a company that does walking ghost tours throughout New Orleans, as they have as they claim that you can still hear screams coming from the house that now stands where they were murdered. A month later, blood would be shed again. Italian-Americans Louis Bessemer and his mistress Harriet Lowe were asleep in their apartment attached to his grocery store. Which, side note, it was a common occupation for Italian-American immigrants to open groceries that would sell staples of Italian cuisines, Italian goods, and that would act as a gathering place for people of Italian descent to talk in their native tongue without the persecute without persecution and to just catch up with each other. So that's why many of our victims are going to be grocers or have relationships with grocers. Lewis and Harriet were asleep in the pre-dawn hours on June 27, 1918, at the corner of Dogenois and La Harpe. The killer broke into their apartment, took Lewis's own axe, and bashed the couple's heads in. However, unlike the previous couple, both would live, at least for a while. Police found the bloody weapon in the bathroom of the apartment and assumed that despite nothing being missing or stolen, that the attack was robbery motivated. So, police found the closest black man that they could find and arrested him. Louis Opacon, a 41-year-old African-American who worked at the grocery store, was arrested. There was no evidence connecting Opacon to the crime, but they held him as long as they could before releasing him. Harriet Lowe was still in the hospital recovering from the axe attack when she recalled being attacked by a man of mixed race, but the police discounted her the statement due to her disillusioned state that her attacker had yet to be found. She would later claim that her lover, Lewis, was a German spy, corroborating a theory that the media had ran with when letters in several languages were found in his house. Lewis was arrested immediately, but he was released two days later because there was no evidence, and the two lead detectives on the case were fired for less than stellar police work. Two months after the attack, Harriet was on the brink of death from surgery complications to repair her paralyzed face when she claimed that it was, in fact, Lewis who attacked her with the axe that night. Harriet would die two days after surgery on August 5th, 1918, an important date to write down in your sleuth book. Hinky, the police arrested Lewis once again, and this time he was charged with murder. Lewis spent nine months in prison before he was found not guilty by a jury on May 1st, 1919, after just 10 minutes of deliberation. Rewind back to August 5th, when eight months pregnant Anna Schneider was viciously attacked. The 28-year-old scalp was cut open, her head having been repeatedly struck with a nearby lamp. Anna was found just after midnight by her husband, who was returning late from work. At the hospital, Anna gave birth to a healthy baby girl, but remembered nothing from her attack. Again, the police pursued the motivation of robbery. However, this time something was missing. 
Mr. Snyder claimed that a few dollars were missing from his wallet, but if he was at work, why was his wallet in the house? Definitely hinky if you ask me. There was also no forced entry, so I am suspicious of the attack on Anna being falsely attributed to the Axeman. But as the record stands, she was attacked by the Axeman. The attack on Anna Snyder was the first time the police believed that the string of violent attacks may have been connected. Next up would be Joseph Romano, an elderly man who lived with his two young nieces, Pauline and Mary Bruno. The girls awoke on August 10th, 1918, just five days after the attack on Anna Snyder, to noises coming from their uncle's room. Concerned, they went to check on him and saw a heavy-set, dark-skinned man in a dark suit and hat running away. Their uncle had taken multiple strikes to the head with an axe and died two days later in the hospital. Cause of death? Severe head trauma. The Romano residence had been torn apart, yet, like most of the other attacks, nothing was missing. A panel of the back door had been chiseled away for entry, which is something to jot down in your sleuth book for later. The murder weapon, a bloody axe, was found in the backyard, but people were calling to report axes appearing in their yard all over the city. The people of New Orleans were beginning to panic. Police were getting reports of axemen lurking in the shadows and dark alleyways just waiting to strike. All the hype led retired Italian-American detective John D'Antonio to publicly hypothesize that the axemen had killed several people in 1911. Detective D'Antonio thought that the axemen to be akin to Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, where he was normally a law-abiding citizen who when he had the desire to kill, that killing was all that mattered. What happens next is the most disturbing part of this episode, so if you need to take it a second, I suggest that you do. The Italian-American Comiglia family consisted of Charles and his wife Rosie and their two-year-old daughter Mary. The entire family was asleep in one bed, Mary held securely in her mother's arms when her parents were brutally attacked with an axe on March 10th, 1919. Their screams awoke many in the neighborhood and a grocer from across the street came running to their aid only to find Charles and Rosie both seriously wounded and Mary dead in her mother's arm from a blow to the head with an ax. Charles and Rosie were rushed to the same hospital Harriet Lowe had died in, but both would survive. Police found that a panel from their back door had been chiseled away Nothing had been stolen, and that there was a bloody axe on the back porch. Rosie would falsely accuse the man that came to their rescue and his son of attacking them, leading both men to be convicted and the son to be sentenced to death. But before the sentence could be carried out, she admitted to lying. Charles divorced her over these claims. Three days after the horrendous attack on the Cormiglia family, a letter was sent to the Times Picayune, a local newspaper. It gets a little weird, but stick with me because you need to hear it. Quote, Hottest Hell, March 13th, 1919. Esteemed mortals of New Orleans, the Axeman. They have never caught me, and they never will. 
they have never seen me, for I am invisible. Even as the ether surrounds your earth, I am not a human being, but a spirit and a demon from the hottest hell. I am what you Orleanians and your foolish police call the Axeman. When I see fit, I shall come and claim other victims. I alone know whom they shall be. I shall leave no clue except my bloody axe, besmeared with blood and brains of he whom I have sent below to keep me company. If you wish, you may tell the police to be careful not to rile me. Of course, I am a reasonable spirit. I take no offense at the way that they have conducted their investigations in the past. In fact, they have been so utterly stupid as to not only amuse me, but his satanic majesty, Francis Joseph. But tell them to beware. Let them not try to discover what I am. For it were better that they were never born than to incur the wrath of the Axeman. I don't think there's any need of such a warning, for I feel sure the police will always dodge me, as they have in the past. They are wise and know how to keep away from all harm. Undoubtedly, you Orleanians think me as a most horrible murderer, which I am but I could be much worse if I wanted to. If I wished, I could pay a visit to your city every night. At will, I could slay thousands of your best citizens, and the worst, for I am in close relationship with the angel of death. Now, to be exact, at 12.15, earthly time, on next Tuesday night, I am going to pass over New Orleans. In my infinite mercy, I'm going to make a little proposition to you people. Here it is. I'm very fond of jazz music, and I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared in whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time that I have just mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going, well, then so much better for you people. One thing is certain and that is that some of you people who do not jazz it out on that specific Tuesday, if there be any, will get the axe. Well, as I am cold and crave the warmth of my native Tartarus, and it is about time I leave your earthly home, I will cease my discourse, hoping that thou wilt publish this, that it may go well with thee. I have been am and will be the worst spirit that ever existed, either in fact or realm of fancy. The Axeman. End quote. That was a little weird, right? Whoever wrote that letter was either supremely disturbed or trying to get an A in their creative writing class. The note also inspired the theory that all of the murders were committed by the Axeman were simply promotions for jazz music. But, um, why? <laughs> Jazz was already very popular at the time. But in a way, it worked. Everyone had their jazz records on, were playing jazz with whatever instruments they had, or had packed themselves into a jazz club. And it worked. No one fell victim to the axe that night. But the axeman in New Orleans was not finished torturing the city yet. 
Steve Boca, a grocer, was attacked by the Axemen on August 10th, 1919. When he came to, Steve ran to a neighbor's house with his head cracked wide open, where he collapsed and was rushed to the hospital. Steve would recover from his injuries, but remembered nothing that could help identify the Axemen. Like you wrote down in your sleuth books, Steve's back door had also had a panel chiseled off for entry. A month later, Sarah Lawman's neighbors went to check on her on the night of September 3rd, 1919. The 19-year-old lived alone, and when she did not answer the door, her neighbors broke it in and found her unconscious body heavily beaten on the bed. A bloody axe was found on the back porch, and police theorized that the axeman climbed through an open window in her apartment to gain access. Sarah would live, but wouldn't be able to remember the attack. Was Sarah truly a victim of the Axemen, or was the Axemen a convenient scapegoat for a robbery gone wrong? We'll get to that later. The final official victim of the Axemen was Mike Pepitone. Mike and his wife slept in different bedrooms, but she was awakened to a loud noise coming from his room and went running to him. There, she saw a large, axe-wielding man fleeing from the room, and the room was soaked in blood. Mrs. Pepitone was left a widow with six children that night. But now that we've gotten through the long list of victims, I will sum up some of the more interesting suspects for the crime. We already went over the Maggio brothers, Louis Opacon, Louis Basumer, and the grocer and his son. First on the suspect list is Joseph Mumphrey, who no one can agree whether or not he was a real man or an urban legend, despite there being a picture of a Joseph Mumphrey at the time. But as the story goes, Mumphrey tried to black blackmail Mrs. Pepitone into giving him $500 and jewelry, threatening to kill her like he killed her husband. So she shot him. And, he, and was cleared of shooting on the grounds of self-defense. Again, no one can agree whether or not the man really ever existed, at least the man in this story. Um, so I'm going to go with he's not a great suspect. Next, with Emmett Daniels, a World War I veteran who had received the Medal of Honor. Daniels was charged but acquitted of brutally raping two women in 1917 but a member of his battalion in the war claimed that Daniels had killed a German soldier with an axe and kept hitting him after he was dead, seemingly enjoying the act. A psychopath with a predilection to use an axe for violence and a desire to hurt women. I mean, could be a guy. Investigators also floated the idea that a vampire was to blame for the crimes. I mean, maybe the Atlas vampire from our Spooktober's episodes went on vacation to New Orleans. Who's to say? I certainly won't rule it out. And finally, since the victims all had ties to the Italian-American community, people blamed the black hand of the mafia. However, leaving that many people alive killing women and children. It just doesn't scream mafia. Now, if all of the men had died and the women had been left alone, 
I'd say mafia, but that's not how it happened. Despite some of those who were attacked describing the Axeman as a heavyset black man, many people who claimed to have seen the Axeman described him as a white man. Which is why the current imagery that we have of the Axeman of New Orleans paints him as a middle-aged, middle-class white man in his 30s, who probably had had experience with burglary since he was able to get in and out of homes easily. Criminal psychologists today believe that the targets of these attacks were the women, and that the men were only killed if they got in the way of what he wanted. This put the Axeman into the category of being a sexual sadist and a disorganized one at that, due to his habit of picking up murder weapons inside the homes of his victims instead of bringing his own. The discrepancies in the case are abundant, some killed with an axe, some killed without, some survived, some didn't. Some of the houses had been broken into through the back door, some showed no signs of forced entries. These misalignments have prompted people to believe that the Axeman may have not killed all of these victims, and some believe that there were many more victims, and that perhaps he could have been killing from 1910 all the way until 1920. But due to the lack of evidence, we may never know who the Axeman of New Orleans was. As always, I want to know what you think about the case. Do you think that the Axeman attacked all these people? Do you think that it was a vampire? Or a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde situation? Do you think that these crimes are connected at all? Let me know by DMing me on Instagram and Facebook at Study or by emailing me at coldcasestudy at gmail.com. Case notes will be posted on social media, and I encourage you to share the missing posters for the missing indigenous children that I post there as well. Thank you all so much. Keep your coffee full and your sleuth book handy, and I'll see you next week for another cold case. Don't forget to stay safe, sexy, and secure by buying a holosgram from youngqueen.shop on Instagram to protect yourself from all the weirdos out there. And don't forget to use my personal discount code, coldcasestudy15. Bye, sleuths. Love you. Mwah.